and welcome to Dot to Dot, the podcast that connects the dots on how to be you with me, Fiona Merton, psychologist and author. So I am really excited to speak to Pat Burgess today and we're back after a little bit of a break. So Pat, you're reintroducing the podcast to our audience which is something I didn't forewarn you of. <laughs> um, and Pat, you've got such an interesting background and something that I think people will find fascinating from a lay perspective, but also fascinating from how they can apply some of the insights and learnings that you've had with your work, with your people to everyday life as well. So who are you, Pat? Tell us who you are. I know that's a really big question. You're, you're probably more interested in what I am in this case then. Um, so, uh, so, so I am uh, Major Pat Burgess, MBE, uh, uh, bizarrely, um, and Doctor of Science, Honorary Doctor of Science from the Glasgow and Caledonia University. I mean, those words coming out of my mouth um, are really alien to, to the me um, of many of a few years ago. But yeah, so I'm a serving um, officer in the, um, in the Royal Tank Regiment in the Army. And um, I've been through the ranks from private soldier, so trooper, uh, through to regimental sergeant major. Um, and now I am the officer commanding this, the combat communication school. Amazing. So, so a good uh, you know, military career is great. The, the reason that you're speaking to me is because what I do is a secondary role. So um, I took it upon myself to, to teach mindfulness to, to defence because it's a very important skill that is lacking, I believe, in our in our ability to make us the best human beings that we can be and and that's the bit that I think the bit that can get overused I'm not saying you're overusing it I use it as well but it's because it's used so much in the public domain of being the best version of ourselves reaching our potential all those things people lose it it loses the substance and the depth that someone with your experience brings to it so those words to me don't actually completely give the color of of what you're talking about because there's so much more to it and there are a lot of people out there now who go be your best self that's a concept though um so so that be my best self that you're talking about is is a psychological construct it's just like a i'm going to be something other than what i am well that's not what mindfulness is about mindfulness is about being the real you isn't it it's about um it's about not creating false roles that, or, or creating new roles to, to fit into which aren't actually you. It's about turning inwards and, and being the real you. And I think that's where the confusion takes place. I mean, most people will look at mindfulness and say, right, where does it fit? And most people say, oh, it's in a clinical setting because it helps people with post-traumatic stress disorder, helps people with depression, it helps people with anxiety. And that's not why I apply it in defence. I apply it in defence because it keeps fit soldiers fit. It keeps us at our optimum, at our, at our best performing level um, for all of the complexities and, and the, the improved um, psychological, physical health, the improved performance, the improved output, the improved focus, the improved attention and all of the other wonderful things that we're all looking for in little bite-sized chunks um, can be achieved by, by one approach. Um, and, and so that's why I say the best version of yourself. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a creation. It's you. Oh, I love that. I love that description. And um, if you if if we wind back the clock a bit, then so so you're saying um, that you 
came to mindfulness more than 10 years ago. So yeah. mindfulness has obviously gained a lot of a lot of uh, airtime in the public, which I think personally, I think in some ways is fantastic because it's raised awareness of it as a tool. But in some ways, again, it, it can lead to people misunderstanding what it's about and oversimplifying it or or not recognizing the depth of what it can bring so tell us about how you came across mindfulness as it were yeah okay sure so so, um uh i'll spare you the really early stuff um from when i was about so when i was 18 before i joined the army i hated that when i was a little bit of a tearaway um, and, uh, and and attempted to try every kind of substance known to man to try and remove myself from what I thought was a really difficult world, uh, not in terms of, you know, uh, taking drugs, drinking alcohol, uh, solvent abuse, all that kind of stuff. Did all that before I joined the army um, and had a little bit of a, an epiphany. Um, people would say it was an awakening um, on using um, like psychedelics at one stage. Anyhow, so that was where I went to start with and then moved swiftly away from that. Um, and came back into what would be considered normal society uh, and realized that I needed to, you know, a, a role, a, a job, um, and all of those things that were acceptable and normal. I was always a little bit anti-establishment when I was younger, believe it or not. You, you, you can see me sat here in a uniform. Um, and so, um, so, I, so I joined the army, went up through the ranks, and I was on a really um, punchy operational tour um, in Afghanistan. Uh, and we were a small um, subunit, a squadron, Egypt squadron, um, and we were involved in some pretty kinetic activity um, and we lost three of our members and we had about 20% life-changing casualties uh, across the squadron, which was only 130-odd people. So so a big, um, big impact on the squadron. So we came back from that tour and, um, and I'd noticed um, that not only the physical injuries, but the, the, the psychological scars that people were suffering. And so um, people were going to the Department of Community Mental Health to speak to counsellors to try and help them with the psychological difficulties. But they they couldn't establish a therapeutic relationship because counsellors had no understanding of the experiences that the soldiers had been through. So I decided decided that's what I needed to do. So I did a degree in psychology with the Open University with a view to becoming a counsellor. Well, I'd been reading um, a book by Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, um, alongside all of this. Um, and uh, when I, I, turned, I was, turned a page in my uh, psychology textbook and I found this thing called mindfulness. And, I was, and when I was reading it, I thought, that's exactly what Tolle is talking about, but just in a slightly different framework. And I thought, OK, so there's, there's an understandable, recognisable thing that, that says what he's talking about. So I finished my degree, did a diploma in mindfulness, and then I went to Oxford and did the eight-week um, MBCT course, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy course. Uh, and I saw a framework at, um, at Oxford. I thought there's a framework that I can incorporate. So I pursued then the the uh, the purpose of trying to create a mindfulness course to teach in defence. So I, I was going around and delivering talks. I mean, I've reached over ten thousand um, service personnel so far, teaching talks around defense about mindfulness and about what it really is you know remove the the trappings there's no robes there's no tie-dye and all that stuff you know just as it is as a really accessible tool um and then i decided to to create my own courses so um i created my own online course to start um i taught it to a boxing team actually to the to my regimental boxing team first which was really successful uh, then i then i decided to create my own courses i did an online course physical course 
And that's kind of grown. And I'm now teaching people to teach mindfulness in defense and still running courses as well, no matter who they are in defense, contractor, um, be they uh, civil service, be they serving uh, you know, personnel. Uh, they can just get on these courses and I teach them over teams. And uh, and it's we're just sort of building stuff up. I love the fact that you you not only took it, but then you took it and translated it to an audience that needed it, but in a way that could resonate and actually land with them, which obviously if, if you don't get through the door with with mm. something like that, you're not going to help anyone. So oh, my talks are great fun. Honestly, you'd love to be on one of my talks because like you, you get like an, an auditorium with about 500 soldiers in it from like private up to, um, you know, the lieutenant colonel, brigadier. And uh, and and they see mindfulness come up on the screen, and there's almost like a, oh. and then and then uh, so and I use that, you know. I normally start my talks. I just go out onto the stage without any introduction, get down into uh, a meditative posture, like a, a lotus position, and I meditate in front of them. And um, and I can feel like the physical resistance coming at me. Um, it's amazing though. It's great because I use it. I harness it. It's awesome. So I can feel it all coming towards me. And then I get up off the floor and I throw a few expletives on. And then I, you know, and then I sort of challenge them and um, to to understand what it is that I was doing or what they think mindfulness is. And then I tell them what it really is. And I use humor and I use um, you know little stories and jokes and stuff. And I get them all involved in it. And by the end of the talk, they're all meditating. Amazing. Well, I would love to come to one of your talks. But for listeners, if if they don't happen to come to one of your talks, what tell us how you would describe mindfulness? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah. Okay. So there's the there's the standard um, John Kabat-Zinn, fantastic. Um, you know, definition: paying attention to the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. Fabulous. Um, you know, but that can just bypass people. You know, paying attention. People are like, yeah, I'm doing that now. No, you're not. Uh, most of you aren't. Uh, to the present moment, like when's that? Now. Okay, but nobody spends hardly any time in the now. They spend nearly all their time in their imagination and paying no attention to the physical moment that they're in because they're, they're creating a future based on a past. Um, you know, on purpose is a biggie in that as well. It's about, um, there's effort required in mindfulness. What you're doing is, bringing yourself into the present moment. There's a really misunderstanding that mindfulness is about going into a meditative posture and drifting off into some dream world, some like daydreamy bliss state where everything's cool, man, it's amazing. And then you come back from it into the real world. It's the opposite. You actually come into the real world out of your dream world. It's a bit matrix-like. And you come into the actual present moment without the labels and the judgments and you see what's really there. And it's it's absolutely astonishing when you see what's really there because you've missed it because you've put labels on all of it and decided what life looks like. But but it ain't that. And when, and when you come back into that moment and look at it through the present moment awareness, it's stunning. Um, and that's the non-judgment bit. Um, you know, these labels and these judgments that we constantly place on things to try to protect ourselves from this amazing, this sort of perceived fearful world that we live in. Um, it's it's amazing because once you realize that there's nothing to fear that you've created all the fear yourself uh, and then you can step back behind the labels and the judgments then my gosh what a what a gift what an incredible experience and there's a lot of a lot of research um about the impact it has on the brain and how it strengthens the connection between prefrontal cortex and the limbic systems of the brain and 
and it is massively misunderstood uh, a lot of the time I think I was talking to um, I don't know if you've come across Russ Harris he's he's a world leader in something known as acceptance and commitment therapy which is a very successful therapy um, which incorporates mindfulness but his first book uh, which is called The Happiness Trap, he didn't actually refer to it as mindfulness because people misunderstood it. And yeah. so he introduced the concepts and the ways of using it without actually using the word until I think quite quite far on in the book. And in a later edition, he's changed that. But even now with the the use of the word in the public domain, I don't think people really understand what it means and you know something else Russ said is people talk about coloring as learning mindfulness it's not you know coloring is relaxation but it's not mindfulness mindfulness is it is a skill and it does take effort it oh, takes sure. effort to learn how to do it and I mean I talk from personal experience I've had the Headspace app for years mm. um, and I do think that Andy Puddicum does a great job of not only coaching you through a, a mindfulness session but actually teaching you a bit about it as well but I find that if I'm disciplined enough to do a little bit every day for maybe a couple of weeks when I wake up in the middle of the night I find it easier to get back to sleep mm -hmm. because you're in the rhythm you're trained to be able to unhook from thoughts and emotions and to take that non-judgmental standpoint but it's not something, A, that we're taught when we're young, mm -hmm. B, that society supports in the West, or C, that our brain actually supports. So it is, it's effortful, isn't it? It is effortful, and because it goes against however many hundreds of thousands of years of conditioned thinking that we've that we've got as a as an organism as a species because it, because like you say all of those you know all that stuff that's all the cellular memory that sits around in our body kind of drives us towards this way that we behave and the way that we treat things as a threat and we move we always operate from a fear base um which is um which is really powerful it's a very powerful emotion and it's so fast when it comes in it really it's really difficult to intervene between it and your action you know that lovely um uh, space i think it was frankel wasn't it who said about um the space between stimulus and reaction um so finding that bit and and this is where i think it's so so important and there is a huge misunderstanding about what mindfulness is and can do i sympathize um with the guy sorry i don't know him who um well, I don't know his work, who didn't use mindfulness. I resisted every attempt to take it out of what I was doing. So everyone was saying, you need to change it. No one's going to accept mindfulness. We need to call it something else. We came up with things like uh, fitness integrated resilient skills training, uh, you know, and um, and all these things that didn't have mindfulness in the title to make it sound punchy and make it sound, you know, so people would go, yeah, I'm doing this because it's making me a stronger person, all that kind of stuff. And I was like, <clears throat> we're actually missing the point. We're really missing the point. Um, because um, there's this lovely um, phrase that's used called the, about the wise warrior. Um, and, and wisdom is so important. And knowing when to employ the skills of a warrior, knowing when to employ compassion, knowing all of those things and where they fit, rather than creating this persona of aggression, um, is so, so critical to us as human beings. And we all 
I don't think there's anybody that doesn't realise at the moment that there's a little bit of a crisis going on with the species and that is troubled inside and is trying to work out what it is that they're troubled for. They know what they're doing isn't the right thing. They know that they're not moving along the right path. They're not quite sure what the path should look like. And there's very few people out there guiding people to the right path or to work to their own path, the path that they should really be on. And the only way that people will ever find that is not externally, buy a new car, get a new job, get a new this, get a new that, fabulous. You know, that's lovely on the outside. But it's so fleeting. It stays with you. You know, a new car for the first six months looks great when people look at it and go, oh, I love your new car is. Uh, and then suddenly it's just a car, isn't it? Uh, so I need another new car then because that one's rubbish because now it's just a, you know, I must need the next one, the next one. All that's fleeting. Inside isn't fleeting. And that also reminds me of, of other work by Frankel or comments that Frankel made. Um, Victor Frankl about um, hedonistic reward being mm. being short term and shallow. Yeah. But something that fits with mindfulness and takes you beyond that is the compassion for other people. Mm. So we know that pro-sociality um, connection with other people is immensely powerful for our well-being, our happiness, our fulfillment. Yeah. And mindfulness although we say it's looking in which it is it is also about that compassion towards the world around us yeah of course i mean this is timely i had an email yesterday someone talking about the research about the whole pro-social thing and about how um how you know it's you know it shows that your there's more damage done to your health by having poor relationships um, you know, friendships and stuff that are shallow than by drinking loads of alcohol and smoking loads of cigarettes, you know, physically, that is your body, um, you know, and, and that shouldn't really come as a surprise for us. And then, and the comment that came with it was, um, it seems that the, that, um, that where mindfulness helps this is it makes us more compassionate um, towards other people, more aware of other people, more aware, and then people want to turn to us to speak to us because we come from a much calmer centre. But I would also argue that the turning inwards is is more important. And I, the reason I say that is, is that, you know, you can't love anybody until you love yourself, right? So because all you're doing is creating stuff outside you. So if you know who you are inside and accept you for what you are, suddenly you're able to accept everything because you, you're not comparing anymore. There's no requirement for comparisons. There's no requirement for all of those other things that you need to do with other people to make yourself feel valued and to make them feel valued and suddenly when that space is open then people want to speak people want to be more open and that's where compassion flows out i i mean i agree i would say it's quite a high expectation to have is to say i have to love myself before i love anyone else for example because we again will naturally not love ourselves we will be self-critical partly because of the way we've been brought up culturally but partly because of the, the systems in the brain so this beautiful this is be sorry to interrupt there's this yeah. beautiful story about um about a king and a queen um who were who were sort of meditators never passing the meditators i don't know if you're aware of that. i'm sure you are i don't know if you're, your listeners are um, but they, um, they're really advanced, the past and the meditators, and they sit down on the cushion and meditate. And then the king said, that those in the, in the days where the king, if somebody disagreed with him, just chop their off, those kind of days, right? So, so the king finishes his meditation and goes and speaks to the queen. He says to the queen, um, um, he said, I've had a very interesting experience on the cushion today. He said, um, and, and I need to ask you this question. He said, who do you love? 
And the queen sort of looks at him and she goes, interesting, she said, because that was what I was focusing on, she said, in my meditation today as well. And she said, and I realised that behind all of it, the person that I really love is myself. Because what I want other people to do is meet my needs. So, so when, I, so when you know, if I, the reason that I, most of us like people is because they fit into our model of what they, so they provide things for us to make us feel better about ourselves. So often, I mean, it does make love shallow. It's not shallow because um, because the the whole feeling, the experience, the emotion is beyond that. But we do spend a lot of time um, only um, being attracted and helped and working with people and loving people until they stop fulfilling our needs. And the minute they stop fulfilling our needs, we don't love them anymore. Well, that's not love, is it? That, that was just getting somebody to do stuff for us to make us feel better about ourselves. So, so really, the only person we cared about at that moment in time was us. That's what you. That's what I mean. So, so it, it's important to really accept you for who you are. Know all those flaws that are within you as a human being. Know that you've got all these things going on, but just still accept that. Then you can accept anything in others. So, something else I find really fascinating from a more clinical perspective of psychology would be the we're seeing more and more that words and this this fits with mindfulness as well but that cognitive um behavioral therapy or words miss the experience of trauma so when someone has experienced trauma whether that's as a child or whether it's in the sort of situations that you've seen or, or any other situation where someone might have experienced it in a car crash or it gets incorporated at an emotional level not a cognitive level and so there can be a level of hate or dislike or disrespect that's so ingrained in a way of being that it's quite hard to find that awareness of that's what I need to do differently. I'm not being kind to myself or I'm not caring about myself. Yeah, that's where the um, that's where like the Vedic system, like the yogic system, would be really useful to apply or to consider, isn't it? The whole energy bit with the body. So all those things, you know, hate is a hate. All those whenever we're feeling resistance, um, as a as a you know, whenever we go tight, whenever our fists clench, wherever we do, what we're doing is we're resisting something. We 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 may not be aware on the surface level, on the cognitive level, that that's what we're doing, but we're actually stopping things moving through us. And when we cling to those things, so you'll be aware of the whole idea of clinging and aversion and, uh, you know, craving where we, where we cling to stuff that comes through. When we cling to stuff, we'll try to repress stuff or we'll try to push stuff back. It just gets stronger and stronger and stronger within us. But what it does is it actually blocks us and stops the energy moving through us. And it just like creates blocks in our, in our system. That's what that, that can then stop it coming out properly cognitively for us, for us to be able to really um, understand the feelings that we're feeling because what we do is we go back into our past because um, that's our only reference point and we create like sort of um, ideas and memories around why we're feeling the way that we're feeling and then we project them and decide that that's why we're experiencing what we're experiencing rather than just letting the feeling emotion through us and accepting that it's part of us that's where like contemplative practice can be really, really helpful. And, it, and I, mean, I know that sounds pretty out there, you know, I mean, you, you're, again, you're looking at a guy in a military uniform and thinking, what, what is he talking about? Possibly, I don't know. But what it does is it stops that, um, it stops that flow and it stops the, cogn the cognition working correctly. And then we, we put like lids on stuff 
And it makes it really, really difficult to open those boxes again once we've decided and entrenched our positions and pushed them down. So a question for you. Do you live what you're talking about? So do you love yourself completely? And do you look to others with no judgment? Oh, so I'm aware of judgment. So you have to, okay? You have to embody the practice. Otherwise, there's no point in teaching mindfulness. You don't embody what you're teaching. Um, then you're not teaching it. You're, you're sort of teaching uh, a, a consumerized version of it, um, which is lovely. But it, take, but it, but it takes years to, to really in, entrench yourself. I'm not, gonna, I'm not doing a political answer. Don't worry, I will get to it. Um, yes, I do love myself. With all my faults, with all my foibles, with all the um, stuff that's stored in me as memory, not only of my own memory, but memory of the race, all those things that are within me that make, that, that can push me to act a certain way. But the difference is that you don't have to do that. You can actually sit back, even though it's a very powerful emotion, even though it's a very powerful thought, even though it's a very powerful drive to do something. There is a space between you and it that you can find by intense practice. And what that will enable you to do is to go, ah, gives you the wonderful privilege that we forget we've got choice. Because we can choose, you know, we can choose what world we live in by what we create with our own minds. By, you know, if you wake up in the morning and it's raining outside and you decide it's going to be a miserable day, guess what? It's going to be a pretty miserable day. But, but the rain is just the rain. It's got no mood. It's got no intentions. It's got no nothing. You know, the sun isn't beautiful, glorious or wonderful. The sun just shines. Go to Australia during bushfire season. Tell me if the sun is beautiful, glorious or wonderful. We, we create the labels and the judgments and all the things we do in that. That narrows us as a person. If you know that and you're aware of how you create that and you're able to notice when you start creating those thoughts and experiencing those feelings and emotions, you can just let them through um, and experience them and accept that you're that. And then you can accept it in others because you know they're coming from the same point as you. A bit about what I've done through my career. So I've profiled senior leaders, so in-depth four-hour psychological profiles, go through their history from when their children up to where they are today and then say it's two people who've been narrowed down for a chief exec role and I would say that if you hire this person this is where their strengths lie this is where um, they might get tripped up this is where they need more support this is where their values align with the values of the team and the organization this is what difficulties could arise these are the risks but to do that to, to do that initial profiling took many months of watching and observing other people doing it and training and part of that was removing myself from the judgment so we have to go into those sessions as much of a blank sheet as we can and then we observe our own interpretation and even interpret what that interpretation means so for example if someone was to make me feel uncomfortable um, underconfident I then think what's happening here why is that person making me feel like that is it something that's coming from me or is it something that's coming from a situation that they have created and then you explore and you hypothesize and you keep doing people often say to me Fiona do you do this when you're in the pub and I'll say no why because it's hard work so I, I I'm not disagreeing I totally agree with everything you're saying I do think there's this piece of it's not easy to do 
it's like you can be trained, you can practice it. I've practiced it for more than 20 years in that sense. But I'll still go in and make judgments on people and then have to correct myself and think, hang on a minute, Fiona, you're making a judgment on someone. You don't know them yet. Because the natural default position that our brain will go into is to initially make that judgment. It's hard work. It's like doing maths all the time because we are actually with mindfulness. You're using the prefrontal cortex. So you're it's, you're I exercising would, I, that area of your brain. And I can see why you say that. And, and uh, sorry, I, I keep cutting across you. Tell me to tell me this is your podcast, not mine. Um, so, <laughs> but what I would what I would say is that you um what you're what you're describing or the way that you're describing it is like it's um you know it's a skill. It's a it has to be done like this. It must be done like that. I look at this. I look at that. And of course, that's taking more cognitive energy because what you're doing is analyzing naturally occurring phenomenon within yourself your whole behavior and all the rest of it and then you're putting another layer of work on top of that to try and work out what you're doing why you do it and then you're saying why am i reacting like this why 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 are they reacting like that like the psychosocial profiling or what you're doing and uh, that's of course that's a really useful skill because it enables you to write all that down and do all that but what i'm talking about is not that what i'm talking about is is not it's not an effort it isn't you you just you just are you it, it's I don't know how to explain it in a better way than just you know just being yourself not and 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 you know noticing the labels and the judgments when they come up don't then analyze them why did that come up well I don't know why I felt like that it's acceptance it's like, oh, look. if I come back to Andy Puddicombe again I am a fan of Andy Puddicombe and yeah. um, my publishers told me off for only writing about his his app in my first book I had to then put some other ones in as well Andy Puddicombe and, and he's not the only one I'm well aware, but we'll talk about the clouds and, and the thoughts being like clouds. Yeah. And actually, that's it's a perfect distinction because I'm looking at the clouds thinking, what's the cloud telling me? Is it a dark cloud? Is it a, is it a cumulus nimbus or whatever? Is What's the wind doing, you know? Whereas what Andy and you would suggest is you say, oh, there's a cloud. And then you let the cloud go. You don't then think, what type of cloud is it? Oh, um, what's that telling me? You're just saying there's a cloud. And it's this or or the other expression I've heard, which I find personally useful is it's like touching a glass with a feather. And so it's not putting that huge effort into making it go away, a thought or trying to work out where it's come from or where it's going or what it means or anything like that. It's saying, oh, interesting. There's a thought. You Sorry? can if you want. You don't have to do that with anything. You can if you want. You know, if there's a thought there that you want to explore, go and explore it. Um, so, so that you know, it doesn't stop you doing that. It doesn't stop you planning. It doesn't stop you creating. It doesn't stop you imagining. It doesn't stop all of those other things. But what it does is it makes you more in control of those things because you direct your mind, which is the tool, rather than being directed by your mind, which is where most people are. Most people are just moving from pillar to post, through being thrown around by emotion and judgment and stuff and I'm no idea you know and and just feel all at sea whereas this gives you the opportunity to watch that occur and then to go oh that's an interesting thought I'm going to go and pursue that and because you can do it with single well, I think what's the principle of zen do one thing at a time you you can then focus your attention like a laser beam on this one thing that you're in unless you're, you're a mother interested. and then that's never, that's never an option <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> There are times, there are, there are times, but even then, even then, but, um, but yeah. So this is, I mean, this is fantastic. And I think it's, 
incredible that you are making such an effort, which is obviously paying off in terms of the audience you're bringing it to. Um, someone I interviewed on the podcast a while back was a friend who has done seven tours of Afghanistan and is very open about having quite severe PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say to someone like that? Because I know that he, for example, and other people I know in similar situations have tried every type of therapy. Would you say mindfulness helps? And if they've missed that it helps, why, why? Because I'm sure you've come across many people who have severe PTSD who will say to you, no, Pat, I've tried that. It doesn't work. Firstly, I'm going to front end this by saying I'm not a clinician. Okay, so so this is my opinion. This is this is not me as a professional saying this. Okay, so uh, so I just need to front end that I'm a tank commander by trade. Um, but but um, but the point the point is that you raise is that sometimes the way that mindfulness is given to people, or the way that mindfulness is portrayed, or the way that it's taught, or the package that people put it in is the wrong package, um, because. Some people are teaching mindfulness and are still learning about it as they're teaching it. I mean, we all do. We, we, we learn it at the start and then we feel the need to impart it to other people. Um, and it, um, but as, during that imparting is when we do the real learning as we start going through our journey. The military-specific journey that people have been on, particularly with post-traumatic stress disorder, is to really understand what's happening in trauma. What, what, is, what are we doing when we experience a traumatic incident? How are we not processing the traumatic incident? So the repression of it, which is what we tend to do. There's some great work by um, uh, uh, David Treliving. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Uh, So uh, trauma-sensitive mindfulness. Um, There's another really useful, um, Peter Levine, um, Waking the Tiger, uh, which is all about trauma. And then, of course, there's Gabor Mate, who is an absolute, like, superstar. Um, in terms of a fantastic book, uh, gosh, can't remember it now. Um, no, anyway, anyhow, he talks about addiction and trauma and about how addiction should be the realm of the hungry ghost, it's called. So, so um, it's understanding what trauma is, understanding how it's sort of stored and where it is and how we can be blind to it ourselves. So we're blind to the fact that we're repressing it. We don't even know that we're repressing it. It's a protective mechanism to stop us from re-experiencing. Um, and then when you know that and you understand that, you can teach mindfulness in a trauma-sensitive way that you can see if, you know, you can notice people's triggers, you can notice people's body movements when they're reacting to something, uh, you know, through a somatic experience coming through the body. And you can be really sensitive to, to enable them to, I'm not going to say relive the experience because that's not the purpose, but to accept the experience that they've had because that's causing a massive blockage. It's stopping them living their lives and they're defined by that moment and that, and they're repressing that moment because they don't want to face it. At some stages, you have to face the experience. You can't keep pretending it's not there. And you can talk around it and you can do lots of other things. You can gradually let it lift. But at some stage, you have to, you have to accept the experience. Otherwise, you can't move forward. And mindfulness can really help with that because what it does in terms of well, certain um, teachings of mindfulness can really bring you in touch with the soma, with the body, which is processing the experiences for you. 
um, and, and it can show you where it's blocked. And then you can go into the pain where it actually physically sits in the body and experience the pain for what the pain is and not attach it necessarily to the story. And the pain can often dissipate because most of the suffering we experience in our life, we create ourselves. We, we experience pain. Everyone experiences pain. Just pinch yourself. You'll feel it. It works. You know, the gen genuine pain, that's to stop you from hurting yourself. But suffering, we do. We do it to ourselves. We create stories about the, the pain that we're experiencing. And when we attach to pain, what happens is, or we try to repress it, what happens is we multiply it in our minds. And then we make it bigger and bigger and bigger and scarier and scarier and scarier. And then we don't want to face it. It's like running away from something in a dream. You know, and it, and it gets bigger and more worry and you, you, you feel like you're running through treacle. If, you, if you're a lucid dreamer, you've got the opportunity to do it and turn around and face yourself, come in the or face the thing coming at you. It will like, reduce massively in size, firstly. And then if you ask it, okay, what's next? It's likely a response would be, I've absolutely no idea. You created me. Because we run away from these self-creations and they're only our perception of things that have been. So, so somebody else's perception who was at the same situation would have viewed it differently. But we are stuck by our, you know, our, by our biology, our environment, and by our experiences, which create the world that we see through our eyes. And, and, and we see through our own eyes, but we can open that up when we experience the physical feeling and sensation. And we can create the space between it and, again, the reaction, the thoughts that, and then we can explore it. So a um, really long answer to a really short question. Yeah, really can be very, very helpful with post-traumatic stress disorder. Those references are really helpful. I'll, I'll put them in the show notes as well. Yeah, sure. Um, where do you hope to get to with mindfulness and your role that you're playing? Uh, I like that, the role that I'm playing. That's good. I like that. Um, okay, so within defence, well, what I would I would like mindfulness to be a recognised, um, accessible tool for everybody in defence. Now we've, we're part way there. We've like defence has got free licences to Headspace. Okay, so defence has paid for everybody in in defence to have access to Headspace for free. So that's been negotiated and done. But what I'd also like, and it doesn't want, I don't want it to be compulsory. There's this thing where people go, everyone should be taught, you know, people go on a course and they, they finish the course and go, this is amazing. Everyone should be taught this. I'm like, no, they shouldn't. It, they could, but they don't have to. Um, it's, some, it's not going to be for everybody and it's got to be at the right time of their life before they come to mindfulness. So for it to be established, um, uh, you know, rubber stamped and said that this is a defense, this is a product that's acceptable in defense and is widely accessible to anybody that needs it. And like I say, Headspace almost ticks that box. But, you know, I like the work that Andy Puddicombe does too, but to me, it's a toe in the water. Yeah, and I, and I, I think that's absolutely right. It's a toe in the water, and not everyone's going to like Andy Puddicombe. No. I mean, I remember, I think I told my brother to listen to it ages ago. I said, he's a really nice bloke. You know, it's he's not going to annoy you. Um, and my brother listened, he's like, nah. And it's like, well, fair enough. You know, it's not it's yeah. not for everyone. And there's a, I haven't got it with me. There's a book that um, I picked up, which is Mindfulness on the Go. And I think there are so many different ways of viewing oh. mindfulness. There's so many incorrect ways of viewing it, like there are with many aspects of psychology. But yeah. there are so many helpful ways that if you're someone who doesn't want to sit even for 10 minutes, there are still ways of understanding it and incorporating it, even 
going for a walk and noticing the color of the sky, noticing mm -hmm. the, the feel of the air on your skin, um, all of those things. But I think what I think is really important, which is what you're talking about as well, is understanding why. Because if you just introduce it, which is, half, which is happening in a lot of schools, it's like, we'll teach mindfulness. Why? What, yeah. what, what, what is it for? Why are you doing it? What does it mean in the context of who I am as a child? Because otherwise, if we can't make sense of things, we don't use them or we don't incorporate them as a practice. So I think no. that's that's something that's really important. So there's a real balance there that you're striking. Um, so the intellectual understanding is really important. The knowledge, the understanding of what you're doing and why you're doing it. But that it is really important. But it, to me, it's actually less important than the practice. So So there is that you've got to know why you're doing what you're doing and then you do the practice and then you experience the benefits of the practice and then you find out why did I enjoy you know why would I experience benefits from that you find that out that you do a bit more practice and then it's so it's like a it's a sort of you know I my sessions um are probably about 60 40 60 percent practice 40 percent um explainer and reflection for people to really understand what they're doing with their you know with mindfulness for them um, and you and to sort of um, so my role in the military is to try and make mindfulness as accessible as possible to everybody, um, you know, beyond headspace should they wish. And then beyond that, my role because I mean I've only got a few more years left in the military and then I'm out. Beyond that, um, I, I this tools I, I you know I this has to be given to the wider society because. Society is struggling in a lot of areas. You, you, there's free. I, I like the way you say that it's not every. It's not going to be for everyone. Andy Puddicombe is not for everybody. This person's not for everybody. Mindful walking is not for everybody. That's not for everybody. It's, it's, a, it's a bit like frequencies, like radio frequencies. If you're not quite tuned into the right frequency, you're not going to hear that person. And, and you know, you can read one book one week, and it can be like this is rubbish and throw it away. Two years later, you pick the same book up again. It's like why? What? Are the, how did I miss that? Because you're sort of a different person. Because you because you've had much more experiences in your life and it's changed the way that you that you experience your life. So for it to be there for when people need it, in a in a simply explained package, um, you know, warts and all, and why it does. That's what that's what I that's what I, my role is. That's the role I'm playing, um, and that's what I want to continue to do. And again, I think I I'm totally in agreement with you with this sort of gradually extending the knowledge and the practice and the understanding it's not sort of dumping a whole load of intellectual stuff on right at the beginning um but when i was in my 20s i traveled around the world on my own and i spent time in china and then lao um and when i was in lao i became really interested in buddhism mm -hmm. and i came back to london and i started reading everything i could on buddhism and i got lost because it was, you know, I'd gone from a nice sort of like simplistic understanding of what it meant and what it looked like in daily life to mm. trying to understand it too much from an intellectual perspective, yeah. which actually then completely put me off um, mm. because it was so like there's so much to it. It's so intricate and dense. And I thought, whoa. And I think I think it's really important for people to realize that it is that it's like you said the dipping the toe in the water it starts slowly gradually see the benefits yeah. see what works for you what doesn't then but then it's also kind of keeping a log and I find that 
when I work with people, I work with people who are very driven to understand more about themselves as leaders. They, they want to because they know they're going to be better leaders. They're going to perform better. They're going to have better mental health. They're going to help the people that, that work for them better. But they forget because we all forget. So they forget what worked for them five years ago, 10 years ago. And I think somewhere along the way, we need to kind of almost keep a log of ourselves for ourselves, if that makes sense. So which mindfulness books did we enjoy and why? Mm. And, you know, as you say, you might go back to that and it might not resonate the second time, but which approaches work for you? And it's keep that little thing. So when we are in positions of stress or distress, and it's very hard to think straight, we can kind of go back and go, oh, yes. I remember when I went to Pat's talk on this and he said X, Y, and Z, that was really helpful. This is where I think the um, the experiential understanding is so powerful because once you've felt physically experienced the benefit um, and if you keep up the practice, um, you, you just, you evolve with the practice, you learn with the practice, your knowledge increases with the practice. Everything just sort of flows out of it but you have to do the practice first. And, and then once you're embodied and established in the practice, then it becomes really, really simple. And that's why I think it's so important because it is a tool for life because you heal yourself. So it's not going to a clinician to ask them to do whatever they need to do or put you on antidepressants or whatever um, people would do. This is about like dealing with your own internal stuff by facing yourself and accepting yourself for who you are. Uh, and then, you know, being comfortable with your place in the world and realizing what the present moment actually is, not what you thought it was. Uh, and then it's like, wow, this, you know, this is, I mean, this is it. This is incredible. That's why it's so important. It is incredible. And, you know, I have done a lot of research into lots of different areas, but that doesn't mean that I do stuff. So I'm hats off to you in that you actually do the stuff that you talk about. I try, <laughs> but I would say my what's it my intention behavior gap is still bigger than it should be I have the intention I have the understanding but I don't always do it any headspace is a prime example of that sorry mindfulness is a prime example of that because mm. there will be times when I do get into a good habit of doing it more often and then despite all the intellectual knowledge I have about how good it is I go oh oh this is really helpful <laughs> so so just yeah. taking myself as an example I would say to people just keep at it just try it just but don't just try it once or twice or three times keep yeah. at it find the approach that works for you and then keep practicing it yeah the eight-week course um, approach created by John Kabat-Zinn is is, uh, is, a re is really good you know and there's loads of scientific research that it takes at least eight weeks to establish a practice to establish a routine and even then you can fall off the wagon at the end of it but what it but what it does is it gives you that it gives you that it embeds it in the in your in the way that you operate and you find the space for you to do it. And remember, the meditation practices are only teaching you to be mindful. Well, there can there can re, you can reach a point where actually you don't need to meditate anymore. So you, so because you're mindful of every moment, because you know where else are you going to be other than here now? It, it's all about coming into the now. But, we, but it's when you start noticing that you're constantly jetting yourself forward. Oh, what am I going to do this evening? What am I going to do when this bloke stops talking? Uh, what am I going to do when that happens? What am I going to do when this, you know, it, when you still don't live in that space, when you live in the space because you've practiced enough meditation to bring you to be mindful in everyday life and the things that you do, you might not, you might choose not to meditate. 
just want to say a massive thank you, um, Pat. I found it really fascinating. I would love to come to one of your talks. Okay. Um, and if people want to know more about you, uh, you've got a website too, haven't you? I do, yes. Uh, Oneworldmindfulness.co.uk. So um, it's everything on there. So there's a free eight-week online course on there. There's uh, there's a there's a podcast on there. Um, uh, not that I do a podcast regularly, but this is a recording of one I did a few a couple of years back. I have to uh, confess that I don't keep the website up to date because it's not my day job. So it's just sat there as a presence and it's got um, some tools and practices that people can use to understand mindfulness a little bit better. Um, and, and when I get round to getting some time to do it, I'll try to refresh my website. But it's there. If people want to look at it and visit it, um, then please, please do. Thank you so much. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. Thanks, Thanks so yeah. much for your time, Pat. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to you for listening. If you want to find out more about me and my work, go to fionamurden.com or my social media handle is also Fiona Murden. If you enjoyed this, please do subscribe, review and tell your friends. It'd be a massive help. But for now, goodbye and I hope you have a great week. Thank you.